The Second Crusade has failed, but its end will open the door to the Plantagenets, that brilliant, avaricious, rebellious, murderous family that will dominate the history of Western Europe for a century to come. Here's their story, so riveting that we still are fascinated by it 900 years later. Welcome back to Season 2 of Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story. An epic, true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Season 2, Episode 3, The Great Gamble. The melodramatic exit of the Plantagenets from the negotiations with the French over the fate of Gerald Burleigh in the summer of 1151 was apparently nothing more than a lively bargaining tactic. Geoffrey and Henry did not storm out of Paris, as one would think enraged aristocrats would be inclined to do under the circumstances. Instead, their visit stretched on and on, and, as they lingered, the pure breath of amiability infused their subsequent dealings with the French. They eventually agreed to release Berlai. They even granted Louis rights to the Norman Vexon, a longed-for resolution to a 200-year-old controversy between the Capets and the Normans. The Vexon was a plug of land on the border between France and Normandy, its fortresses commanding stretches of four rivers between Paris and Rouen. Like a medieval Berlin, it had been split between the two powers years before as a kind of buffer between jostling rulers. Each, naturally, wanted the other half back. Grumbling as they signed the papers, the Normans had handed over Gisors, a key city in their half, in 1144 in exchange for Louis' recognition of Geoffrey le Bel as Duke of Normandy. Now, seven years later, the same Normans quite readily signed the papers to give up the rest, so that Geoffrey's son Henry would be acknowledged as Duke of Normandy in his father's place. But all of this politicking was just background murmuring compared to the stealth bomb that was about to go off behind everyone's back. Somehow, sometime during the Plantagenet's stay, it's commonly accepted that Alionor selected Henry, some nine years her junior, the son of her rumored lover, as her next husband and that Henry chose Eleanor as his wife. Most unfortunately for us, the curtains that persistently cloak Eleanor's life descend again, and just when we would most love to see them shoved aside. She was already famous throughout Christendom for everything from the Aquitaine to Antioch. Still beautiful, an heiress queen who had been to Constantinople, to Rome, to Jerusalem, who had watched starving men eat dead horses in the winter mountains of Anatolia. She had told a king and a pope that she wanted to be shed of her wedding vows. Yet, she was still married, without a clear path to the annulment she wanted. She had given birth only to girls. Her reputation was neither chaste nor dutiful. She was the Duchess of Aquitaine and would escape the role of Queen of France if she had her way. 
He was 18 to her 27, the son of the handsomest man in Europe and an imperial mother who happened to be a decade older than her husband. He was newly Duke of Normandy, would be Count of Anjou sooner than anyone expected, and might well one day be the King of England. These two, Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry Plantagenet, decided, with what words and what actions we do not know, that they were made for each other. As far as we can tell, her current husband, Louis Capet, King of France, knew nothing of it. If he had, the story would probably have played out very, very differently. The impact of their secret meetings, their murmured conversations, and carefully guarded messages that we can never witness was profound. As we've already seen, the aristocratic couples of 900 years ago parted with notable frequency. But the prime mover was invariably a husband wishing to be done with a barren, disappointing, or otherwise insufficiently attractive wife. Certainly, no other queen had ever tried to detach herself from a royal husband until Eleanor of Aquitaine. She single-handedly decided to take the Aquitaine, an immense territory, and all the wealth it contained, from the grip of one kingdom and bestow it upon another. It was overpowering and shocking, disruptive and frightening, unforgettable. Here was a woman as determined, as proud and as driven as any man. Minds across Europe were staggered. No one would forget it, and thinkers, poets, and historians would struggle to comprehend it for centuries to come. The shock of what happened to Louis and to France is apparent in the troubled contemporary descriptions of how it came about, what caused it. Most of the quote-unquote explanations point to some variation of the carnal Eve, the wanton, headstrong, heedless woman who puts her own wayward impulses above the good of either family or nation. As the chronicler Gerald of Wales wrote in his History of Britain, almost all the greatest evils in the world have arisen from women. One after another of the observers piled on. William of Newburgh, the one who quoted Eleanor's famous remark that she had intended to marry a king, but had married a monk instead, pondered it all and decided that even during her marriage to the king of France, she longed to be wed to the Duke of Normandy as one more congenial to her own character. Walter Mapp, the chronicler who called King Stephen an idiota, insisted that Eleanor cast what he described as glances of unholy love upon the strikingly vigorous young Henry. Other gossip, recycling rumors that dated back to Raymond of Antioch and even to William IX and Dangerous, whispered that Henry was the seducer, stealing a not unwilling Eleanor from the pallid Louis. Gervais of Canterbury was certain that Henry was enticed by the woman's power and wealth, and emboldened by her willing response. No one gave either party to the affair credit for mature, considered thinking, one must say. 
Yet Eleanor and Henry, however breathless at the newfound existence of the other, had to sit back and contemplate what they were proposing. She did not yet have a way out of her marriage, and might never find one. The Pope himself had prohibited the very thought of a royal separation. Her soul's eternal life would be in question. The fascinating young gentleman was a duke, but only Anjou was still certain to be his. Certainly not a crown that might make up for the one she would relinquish. The Capetians would become the kind of enemies who endure for generations. For his part, it had to cross Henry's mind that his mother's struggles in England proved that he had to have himself a son, while Eleanor so far had been as good as barren. Still, none of that mattered. One can easily picture the glorious images that danced in their heads, the incredible prospect of the empire the two of them would rule, the old dream of uniting Normandy, Anjou, the Aquitaine, and England, made real. What they could have was bigger, stronger, and richer than anything in Western Europe. They had to do this. Anything less would be more intolerable than eternal damnation. The Plantagenets couldn't lounge around Paris forever. Henry and Eleanor had to separate. We have no idea what pledges were made, what assurances of love or its mirror image protection exchanged. We do know that Geoffrey Lebel and his son rode away from Paris, which had been sweltering under a fly-specked medieval heatwave. At some now-forgotten crossroad, they parted. There are varied stories as to what happened to Lebel. One says a day's ride brought Geoffrey to his ancestral valley of France's lovely Loire River, which ran through the Plantagenet lands of Anjou. The idea of a swim to wash off the dust and sweat of the abominably hot weather was vastly appealing, and he went in, probably laughing and splashing with the glee of fresh clear water on sunburned skin. That night, while the party ate, drank, and bedded down, Geoffrey LaBelle developed chills and a fever, drifting off into a restless, incoherent delirium. His men helplessly tried to cool and calm him, sending riders pelting out to retrieve his son. But Geoffrey died a few days later. No one had seen it coming. He was only 39 years old. If Bernard of Clairvaux had in fact yelled his curse, even Geoffrey's cocky son might have shivered and crossed himself when he heard of his father's death. But his heart must also have pounded with anticipation. Henry now had Anjou and Normandy behind him. If Eleanor could give him the Aquitaine, he would take England. He knew it. As for Eleanor... By now, her obsession with freedom from Louis must have been unendurable. The King of France, meanwhile, had made an interesting decision of his own, although at first no one quite realized it. He began a royal tour of the Aquitaine, a major appearance by king, queen, and their court, Franks and Poitevans riding side by side. Officials of the kingdom 
royal retainers, and friends, significant vassals, churchmen, servants, baggage trains, dogs, and falcons, all took to the road. Louis had his eunuch bodyguard Thierry Galeran, Alionor her friend Geoffrey de Rancon. One courtly scene after another unfolded. Provincial barons making their submissions to their king, sessions of court to resolve conflicts over land and money, charitable grants dispensed to convents and churches, afternoons of hawking, nightly banquets representing a significant outlay by locals bent on impressing the touring celebrities. The royals would move slowly, a few miles an hour for the most part, an easy walking pace that permitted the common people to see the celebrities' faces and feel the pride of living in a kingdom so colorful, so noble, so able to afford splendid horses, furs, satins, banners, lances, flowered wreaths, tanned leather trappings, alms purses filled with coins. On the surface, all was perfectly normal, although a few chroniclers thought they detected a strained tension between Louis and Eleanor. What the chroniclers did not know was that wherever French troops and administrators were based, royal orders were quietly given to withdraw so that Aquitanian replacements could settle in. It was the first subtle sign that Louis had finally agreed that his wife would be leaving France. Eleanor could simply have been sequestered for the rest of her life in some ugly fortress or silent convent, since the man who was her husband was also her sworn master. Louis calmly didn't press for that outcome. Eleanor, in turn, could have started a war at the mere threat of imprisonment. But even if she had suddenly volunteered for a life of cloistered prayer, Louis himself would be unable to remarry while she lived. A divorce based on her supposed adultery was certainly possible, but divorced couples could not remarry either. He was backed into the corner of agreeing to an annulment on the grounds of consanguinity, exactly as she had first proposed in Antioch. Because the marriage now was found to legally never have existed, her lands were unquestionably hers. The Capes would lose the Aquitaine with the stroke of a pen. The Easter season seemed to have some cosmic resonance with Eleanor of Aquitaine. Her father's death, Vézelay, departing Jerusalem, all had happened during the unfolding days of early spring. The end of her fifteen-year marriage, the end of her reign as Queen of France, was of the pattern. A week before Holy Friday, 1152, right at the time of the vernal equinox, four archbishops, several lesser bishops, and selected nobles met at Beaugency, some hundred miles southwest of Paris, to hear Louis's case against his queen. The little town on the bluffs above the Loire had gained primacy in the area because the only bridge for miles had been built at its doorstep. One day, Joan of Arc would make it famous. But at present, it had its bridge and its castle, its tiny stone houses and its small market. It was also neutral territory, sited between the French and Aquitanian capitals, 
undoubtedly a location carefully worked out well in advance. There were no precedents for this royal event. Nothing like it had ever happened before. Louis and Eleanor arrived with their separate retinues. The gathering was subdued. The Bishop of Langres cleared his throat and proposed that the Synod inquire into Eleanor's supposed adultery. The Archbishop of Bordeaux, her countrymen and frequent refuge, steered the assembly away from that reef, arguing that the sole issue to be decided was the couple's consanguinity. Witnesses were called upon to duly swear that they knew the king and queen were blood relatives within the prohibited degree. The Archbishop of Bordeaux went on to formally request the king's oath that Eleanor's lands would be restored to her and that she would not be prohibited from marrying again. In turn, she pledged fealty to Louis as his sworn vassal, required to ask for his approval of any future marriage. Because the marriage had been contracted in good faith, the royal children, seven-year-old Marie and her toddler sister Alex, were declared legitimate. They would remain in the king's custody. Quill pens scratched over parchment documents. Pale spring sunlight filtered through narrow windows. Birds sang in the still bare chestnut trees. Boatmen swore as they rowed their barges upriver. The Archbishop of Sens said the words. The royal French marriage was over. They could not know it, but Louis and Eleanor would never see each other again, although as sovereign rivals they would be entwined for the rest of their lives. It would seem that William X's dynastic gamble of marrying his daughter to the Capets had played its last hand. And so it was that Eleanor of Aquitaine, the former Queen of France, now forever free of Paris, rode with her liegemen toward their beloved capital city, Poitiers. The idea of the coming summer, with its golden southern warmth, poetry laughingly recited through long evenings of indigo twilights, good food and good wine pulled them all. The town of Blois was on the way, the seat of the House of Blois, whose most famous current member was King Stephen of England, the Duchess's retinue intended to spend the night at a local abbey. That plan failed. Someone thought to send word that young Theobald of Blois, an adolescent son of the resident count, had dreamed up the idea of kidnapping Eleanor before daybreak. We know that thefts of unmarried, or even married women, were not a shock to the House of Aquitaine but Eleanor must have felt some exasperated surprise that she was already a target of juvenile second sons before she had been single even two days. The group hurried on from unexpectedly dangerous Blois, making for the land called Touraine, a delightful holding of Henry Plantagenet's, known for its forested beauty and happy people. They intended to cross the Pretty Cruise River, picturesque enough that Claude Monet would paint it fourteen times in his day. Another crisis flared. Word this time was that Henry's brother, another of the apparently limitless Jeffreys of the day, 
irrepressibly ambitious at the age of seventeen, was on his way to grab Eleanor at the ford. Cursing with annoyance, the Aquitanians dodged yet again. This Geoffrey would eventually die childless. His failure to snatch Eleanor could be said to have ruined his life. For her part, having avoided abduction twice in two days thanks to pure good luck, Eleanor might well have thought with happy relief that God blessed her, regardless of her forsaken marriage. Home, finally home, she installed herself in her grandfather William's Maubergeon Tower in Poitiers, the very place where he had bedded her grandmother, La Dangereuse, with such unalloyed pleasure. For a few weeks, Eleanor can be seen in the historical record in her own right, busily re-establishing herself as Duchess of the Aquitaine and freeing her country from lingering Capetian control. Favored barons were given papers attesting to new hunting rights, or gifts of castles, to cement their enthusiasm for the change in government. The one document we have no record of is, naturally, the one we want most, the communication with Henry, saying, Now. She knew what she was risking. Eleanor and Henry, Duchess of Aquitaine and Duke of Normandy, owed personal fealty to Louis Capet. Indeed, both had sworn vows of allegiance to the French king, she just weeks before at Beaugency. The bridal couple was accordingly obliged to ask Louis' permission to marry. Of course, they did no such thing. Instead, on Sunday the 18th of May, 1152, two months after her annulment, they were married in the cathedral at Poitiers, the royal bride dressed in fashionable red. This time, there was no audience of a thousand noble guests. The two were wed quite simply. The deed was done. Eleanor had remarried with such speed and to such a man that Suger, if still alive, would have dropped writhing to the floor the instant he heard of it. Louis and his court were speechless. She had taken the entire Aquitaine, its people, its ports, its rivers and forests, its farmland and vineyards, its feudal relationships, and all its wealth and handed it over to the Plantagenets. To those with the wit to be amused, the fact that this marriage required hasty dispensation from agreeable clerks would produce considerable hilarity. Eleanor and her new husband were every bit as closely related as Eleanor and Louis had been. Nor were they alone. Pious Louis's next wife would be more closely related to him than Eleanor had been. They were close in other ways as well. Within six months, Eleanor would be pregnant with their first child. William X's gamble was not, after all, quite played out. And so we come to Henry Plantagenet, half French and half English, half descended from William the Conqueror, half from the devil-bred Counts of Anjou, born under the sign of Pisces. 
His astrological symbol was that of two great silvery fishes, one heading upstream, the other pulling down. Among other difficulties attending Piscean life, it is said by astrologers that romance plays havoc with them. Let's consider our lovers, marrying with unseemly haste just weeks after her annulment, joining their lives without royal permission, without ceremony, flaunting their passion to be together, yet sadly doomed by the laws of astrology to lives of frustrated fury with each other. But they did have a few splendid years before their paths began to wind down that steep and painful slope. They married in the pretty month of May, at her capital city, Potier, the 19-year-old duke and his 28-year-old duchess, whose name would now change from the Poitavan Alionor to the anglicized version far more recognizable to us, Eleanor. The lady, a veteran of two childbeds, all those cold winters on the Seine, tongue lashings from Bernard of Clairvaux, torrents of salacious gossip and a crusade, was rather aged according to the standards of her day. Even so, the troubadour Bernard de Ventadon, a lifelong admirer, described her at the time as a true noblewoman, beautiful and charming. Her groom, on the other hand, had more in common with the forest boars he loved to hunt than with the prince of a romance. He wasn't tall, considered even in that era of shorter men to be of only middling height, with a barrel chest and short red hair, fair freckled skin, gray eyes and muscular arms that ended in calloused hands used hard for everything from swinging a sword to mending his own tunics. Even his voice was said to be harsh and cracked, more used for yelling from horseback than murmuring at table. No, Henry Plantagenet was no Geoffrey LaBelle, but just the same, as we will shortly see, he was utterly compelling. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author Karen Markle Knapp. A big thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again January 8th for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me. Until next time, thank you for listening.